It was September of 1857 that a passenger steamer ship called the SS Central America set out from California. The ship was carrying 500 passengers and tons of gold from the California mountains. This was kind of in that gold rush time in California. During the journey, the ship sunk in a hurricane 200 miles off the Carolina coast. The shipwreck was long forgotten for more than a century until 1989, when Tommy Thompson, an ocean engineer, sailed into Norfolk Harbor with over 10 tons of Pioneer California gold. Using a combination of oceanography, computer science, and information theory, Thompson's team recovered mint state coins, antique bars, and sparkling gold dust from 8,000 feet below the surface of the, of the ocean, proving everyone wrong who said it will never be brought back. The, this, the SS Central America sat for 132 years, 200 miles offshore and almost two miles below the ocean surface, a depth at which she was assumed to be unrecoverable until 1989. Wow. It almost makes you want to go out and look for some treasure. <laughs> now, not far from here, we're, we live in the Space Coast, but just a little bit further south, there's another coast called the, the Treasure Coast, right? And there were many uh, ships uh, that had gone down off the coast here, and the, the coast there was called the Treasure Coast because a lot of that treasure over time, uh, people were finding it. In fact, it wasn't too long ago I saw a story uh, where a diver off the coast, I think it was right off of, here, off of Vero Beach, uh, within the last couple of years, I, I remember, um, someone found a, a pretty good uh, find of sunken treasure, gold. And uh, so pretty incredible. Well, let me tell you, it does make you want to go search for gold, maybe get one of those um, metal detectors, walk up and down the beach, maybe sometime, maybe... Maybe, like, in my retirement, you'll see me out there with one of those Panama Jack hats and, <laughs> and, and, a, and a, uh, I don't think so. Um, let me tell you, there, there is a treasure, uh, in, in a sense, a lost treasure that should be gone after. And let me submit to you tonight that it's the, the lost treasure of the spiritual disciplines of Christ. It's a lost treasure. A lost treasure of the disciplines of Christ. In a world filled with material treasure and spiritual guidance from much of Christendom to gain that material treasure, the true treasures of the spiritual dis disciplines of Christ have nearly become extinct from the dialogue and discussions in many Christian circles. We need to rediscover these treasures, the treasures of the spiritual disciplines that Christ modeled for us. Jesus lived with, with great discipline 
in his life. He modeled, in fact, Jesus is the model. His life from start to finish is the model of how to be human and live for the Father perfectly. He's the model, and he showed us how to do it. And, uh, and that's why the writer of Hebrews calls him the author and the finisher, right, uh, of the faith. And so he's, he's that one that we're following. And uh, so we need to find out what these disciplines are and commit ourselves to them because each one of them are things that Jesus wants to see developed in our lives. So in the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us how the Father wants to discipline us and bring discipline into our lives as believers. And the fact of the matter is that God is thrilled. He's, he's over the, what's the, what's the saying? He's, he's, he's over the moon. <laughs> of course, he made the moon, so he needs a different statement here. But he's over the moon that you, that, that you are that you are saved, that you're born again, that he has brought you to life in the kingdom, that he's brought you into the family. Boom, he is thrilled. But he, he never wanted to stop there. He wanted to bring you into the family and then begin to bring you up in the family. Amen? And that's why the great commission that Jesus left the disciples with was what? Go and make disciples of all nations. So if you're a Christian here tonight, we're really called to be his disciples. We're really called to follow him. You know, Jesus never looked at anybody and said, come and be a Christian. You know, they're going to come up with this term. They're going to call you little Christ. Come and be a Christian. He said, no, he looked at Levi on the tax collector booth, on the toll booth there. And he said, come down off of there and follow me. And, he, and of course he did. He left a lucrative career with the IRS and uh, to follow Jesus. And, and so, so we've got to learn how to be his disciples. Amen? So let's look here at Hebrews. Hebrews is all about, in the second part of it, about the Father wanting to discipline us as children and bring us up to be those sons and daughters that he's called us to be. When you get to chapter 12, the writer compares the Christian life to that of running a race. He, he, he takes the Christian life and he kind of compares it to that of running a race. To run and compete in and win a race, it takes tremendous discipline. If you were going to run, if you were going to win a race of running, takes tremendous discipline. On Saturday night, I, told, I talked about living by God's principles. I said this, I said, if you will live by God's principles, you will live an abundant life that Christ has for you, amen? What we're gonna be looking at over the next several weeks are some of the core principles of following Christ. And if you will be discipled in them and learn them and learn of them, you will live a full and abundant life that Christ has for you, that God has for you, that the Lord Jesus promised us in John chapter 10, verse 10. And so we're given keys to godly discipline. We're gonna look at 
two of them here in Hebrews 12, the first two verses. The first one is if you're going to embrace the disciplines, there's kind of an idea that some people have of saying, well, you know, it's futile to even try because I'm not going to be able to do it. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions, right? I'm not going to be able to keep them, so why even try? Let's just, you know, the Lord loves us, and let's just keep going, you know? Uh, No. Um, (laughs) We want to submit this to you, that learning to walk with the Lord and according to his principles, the key is developing faithfulness in your life. Faithfulness is the key. And then the second key is keeping your focus on Jesus. So let's take a look at this Hebrews 12, verse 1. Faithfulness is the key. It says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Faithfulness is the key. If you're going to develop spiritual disciplines, spiritual habits in your life, you have to realize that the key to developing disciplines is faithfulness. Faithfulness is the key. Faithfulness is what is required to develop disciplines in your life. Whether you are looking to develop physical disciplines, we're looking at spiritual disciplines, but let's just think about physical disciplines. If you wanted to develop a physical discipline in your life, what would be the, the key to you developing that in your life? Faithfulness. If you wanted to develop a habit of being early to work every day, What would be the the key to doing that? Faithfully getting up a little bit earlier, right? So faithfulness is the key to developing disciplines in our lives, whether whether they're physical, whether they're financial, or spiritual. Now we're looking at the spiritual disciplines. If you're going to do something, if you're going to learn anything, it's a good idea to learn from those who have done it, right, who are successful, And it's even better an idea to learn from those who did well at whatever it is that you're wanting to learn. If you want to learn faithfulness, it's a good idea to look at those who had tremendous faith and were faithful. You need to look at those who were faithful. The writer of Hebrews here in our text today, tonight that we read, uses a sports analogy to get his point across I, I personally love sports analogies because I've generally been a sports fan uh, my, through my life. Uh, and many times a sports analogy will help in trying to get a particular point across. And so the biblical author uses those sports analogies. Paul was famous for it. That's probably one of the reasons why people believe that Paul wrote the uh, book of Hebrews, although that is, you know, I've read some stuff recently that kind of made me swing out the other way. Maybe it wasn't Paul. So, you know, one day we will find out who wrote the book of Hebrews. Amen? But until then, we just have to keep going. Now, he, this particular author does use a sports analogy, and I think they're helpful. I think the reason 
is that most people understand how sports work. How many of you have ever play, played sports? You ever played organized sports? Right. So just to, almost all of us, unanimously across the board, we played some type of organized sports, and so we kind of understand how sports work. And because we understand how sports work, we know how you have to kind of develop the techniques. You have to go to practice and learn how to dribble. Or, you know, if you're going to be good at golf, you have to go to the driving range and learn how to stand and learn how to grip the club and learn how to rotate your hips and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of learning those things and, and being faithful to repeat them and, 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 and to do them. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people, uh, that, that sports analogies are helpful. Um, so when I think of, when you look at sports, when you look at the sports world, um, and let's, let's think about baseball tonight, because football is over, amen? Super Bowl is gone. Once the Super Bowl is in the rearview mirror, guess what's coming? Spring training, amen? And so spring training is right around the corner. Now, when you think of the, the greats of baseball, who do you think of? Just shout somebody out. Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, huh? Roberto Clemente, who? Barry Bonds. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've all got these. I had Mickey Mantle, Hank Aaron, and Nolan Ryan. When I think of football greats, who do you think of when you think of football greats? Tom Brady. Nick Falls now is in that category. All right. Okay. Ben, ben Roethlisberger. All right. I had down on here Roger. I went way back to my childhood on some of this. I had Roger Stahlback, Joe Montana, and John Elway. All right. How about basketball greats? LeBron James, Steph Curry, Larry Bird. All right. I had... I had on here Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and of course, Michael Jordan, right? You can't have a list of basketball greats. And, and Chris met uh, Michael Jordan. Talked to her about that. She, had, she helped him out. She sold like, you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of, of clothing to uh, Michael Jordan when she was working at the, in the Miracle Mile shopping district in, on the north side of Chicago. So many players today in these sports draw on inspiration from the dedication, preparation, and skills of these players. When you, when you talk to a player today that's currently doing well, they, they will talk about how they've drawn on inspiration from others that have gone before them, that, that inspired them. Uh, Tom Brady talks about uh, Joe Montana and, and people like that all the time. In fact, almost every interview I hear with Tom Brady, he, he has mentioned uh, Joe Montana. And so they're, they're drawing on inspiration from those who have gone before them and were successful. So if we wanted to look to examples for ourselves of people who have gone before us in the faith, I think it'd be a good idea to do that, Right? I mean, if we're going to set out on the journey of faith, because that's what it is, it's a journey through life. You were born, and from the moment you were born, you are on a journey moving forward until the last moment of your life when you'll draw your uh, last breath and you'll go to, to, to be literally in the presence of God. 
So right now, we're on a journey. We're on pilgrimage. And if we're going to be on this journey, I think it's a good idea to maybe look back and say, hey, who were the greats? Who were the greats that we can learn from? Well, we read two verses in chapter 12 of Hebrews. If you go back to the previous chapter, chapter 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews is actually called the Hall of Faith. Not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith. And there the writer basically lists the greats of the faith from the Old Testament. And he gives you the reasons why these men and women were the greats of the faith. And so, in fact, he says, therefore, look at verse 1 again. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, what is he talking about? He's talking about the witness of the faithful who he's just talked about in the previous chapter, all the greats of the faith. And what he's saying is we're surrounded by their witness, there's, this, there's kind of this cloud of witnesses and he kind of draws on that imagery of kind of the Olympic, the Olympic games and the, and, and the crowd and, the, and the, you know, kind of the spectators. Now, there's a, some people have interpreted this to mean that like, you know, the greats of the faith are literally like, you know, kind of just sitting just high enough above the clouds, but there they are. And they, they're looking down and it's kind of like an amphitheater. They're going, go, Charles. Yeah, go preach it. No, but, but what, <laughs> or they're saying to you, you know, yeah, go witness to that guy or do good or whatever it is that you're, you're, you're doing living for God. The reality is, is that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses because they're witnessing by the body of the, their life, the work and the, the walk that they had with Christ has now become this cloud of, of witnessing to us. And so, so we're being witnessed to by the example that they have laid forth and, and we can read about in the Old Testament. So we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. So... Let's take a look at some of these witnesses that he talked about in the previous chapter. The faith and faithfulness of these men is a response to three callings of God in the scriptures. There are three calls of God in the race of faith. So the, the writer of Hebrews says, let us run with, since we're Surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us. If we're going to run the race, we've got to respond to the three calls of God to run this race. Okay, so this is what we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at Noah. Go back to, um, let's see if we can find it here. Go back to... I just messed up my whole situation. Uh-oh. No, I got it. Verse 7. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Verse 7 of 11. 7-11. 11-7, I mean. 
By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of, of the righteousness which is according to faith. So here, the writer talks to us about the faith of Noah. What was his faith? Noah's faith was an example of the, of the call to salvation. It's an example of salvation faith. By faith, Noah was moved by godly fear, prepared the ark. The, the, he, he made the ark. Remember, he built the ark. We were going through Genesis, right? So he, we, we studied this. He built the ark for a long time. And so it's, it's that, that call of God. It's the call to salvation faith. It's believing that what God says is true and that I need to respond to his word. I need to believe upon his word. And Noah did that. And he was saved. Him and his wife and his three kids and their wives. Three boys and, and their wives, right? Eight souls were saved in the ark. So he responded to the call of salvation with faith. Abraham, verse eight, and he's right we're current right now with Abraham, right? Verse eight, he says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so Abraham's faith is an example of a faith of a true disciple. How's that? By faith, Abraham obeyed God. He was told to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance, even though he did not know where he was going. In some sense, that's kind of like our lives as Christians, right? We've been told to obey the Lord, to receive him, to move out in faith, to begin to walk with him. He's taking us to a place. We don't know exactly what that's gonna look like. I talked about that in the, in the beginning, right? We're, we're, we're gonna be in heaven, we're going to a place, there's gonna be the new Jerusalem. We don't know all the details of it, there's some of it, but it's a little fuzzy, it's a little, we look through a glass darkly, as Paul would say it, but we're still on pilgrimage. We're still walking the journey. We're still walking through the land of Canaan, waiting for the inheritance, the full inheritance to be ours, amen? And so, Abraham's faith is an example of the faith of a true, true disciple. Discipleship is knowing and obeying the commands of the master. Jesus is our master in the race of faith. And to be his disciples, we must obey his commands by faith. And then one last example, one last witness that we'll use, Moses. Skip down to chapter 11, verse 24. Well, let's just read 23, too. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked 
to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should, firstborn should touch them. By faith he passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So we have Moses. Moses' faith is an example of the call to servanthood. How's that? Because Moses was a prince in Egypt, right? Remember how when he was put into the river, Nile, by, we read the verse in 23, his, by faith his parents actually put him in the river, in the basket, right? Remember, you know, I've always pictured that. I've always wondered what that was like. Okay, here they, can you imagine the parents? They put, they put this basket and put their baby in the basket and just sent it out on the Nile? I mean, aren't there crocodiles on the Nile? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a crazy conception when you think about it, but this is what happened. And who, who was he found by? He was drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter, and he came to uh, to live in the palace of Pharaoh and grew up in the palace of Pharaoh. And so this text in Hebrews 11 talks to us about how he, he had the, the wealth of the world at his fingertips. He grew up with the pleasures of, you know, the delicacies, the, the you know, I'm sure he, you know, Egypt, you know, the finest of foods, the finest of clothes, the finest of, of living conditions and all the rest of it that could be found, really, at that point. And yet, he got to that point where he, as the, as the writer tells us, and as Genesis, as Exodus uh, delivers the history for us, he, he chose to be recognized not as the son of Pharaoh or the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So he chose, what did he choose? He chose to be identified with the people of God, and he went out and he was called into the service by God to be uh, the, the leader of the Israelites and lead them out of Egyptian bondage. And remember when God called them, you turn over to Exodus 3, don't do it now, but when you read that chapter, there God is calling Moses to do this. And what is God, what is Moses saying? He's saying, look, no, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not the right guy for the job. I'm just out here taking care of my father-in-law's sheep. I just, you know, in fact, I can't even talk right. It was said that Moses had a stutter. So he said, God, you got the wrong guy. I mean, I'm out here. I, I, I can't talk right, whatever. You know what God said, told him? He said, I, I, know, I, know about, I know about your mouth. I made your mouth. I know about your mouth, and I got the right guy. And I'm calling you to be a servant. I'm calling you to be the one. I'm calling you to be the one that I'm going to use to be a deliverer of, of the Hebrew people and, and bring them out of Egyptian bondage. And so look at the life of Moses. He chose to be a servant of Christ 
and look for the reward that was in Christ rather than to enjoy the riches of Egypt. And this is the call of the servant of Christ. Amen? So we're called to salvation. We're called to disciple, to be a disciple, to walk this journey with God as Abraham did. So we're called to salvation as Noah. We're called to walk the journey as Abraham. And we're called to servanthood as Moses. And so we can learn the faithfulness of each three. And of course, the whole chapter is filled with examples, right? I'm just, I just picked kind of the three, you know, you might say the three greats. Um, but the whole, there's a whole chapter there that you can go through and glean from their witness of how they lived their life and the faithfulness that they had to God. Now, one of the keys to discipline and faithfulness is getting rid of sin and other things that weigh you down. Let's go to the next chapter here. Go back to our verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with race, uh, endurance the race that is set before us. What you've got to do if you're going to run a race, if, if living and being discipled and being faithful in the walk of Christ and walking with Christ is, is compared to this race, what you've got to do, and the writer is telling us, he says, you've got to lay aside every weight and sin that would easily ensnare you so that you can run the race that is set before you. And so you've got to lay aside weights and sins, weights and sins. Get rid of the weights and the sin that slows you down. You can't run, you can, you can run better without things weighing you down. When you go out, when you ride around your neighborhood, you know, when I, when I ride around and I see people out there running, I'm not out there running, but I see people out there running. And when, when I see people out there running, I see that they, they, they're not out there with like, you know, 10 pound dumbbells on, on, on their legs and, you know, the heaviest of jackets and they're not out there in like army boots and all this stuff. No. Have you ever picked up the Nike running shoes? They're light. Have you ever looked at those, those Nike running shorts that are like, you know, short shorts, you know? Those ones that like, I'm not wearing those, okay? <laughs> you know those shorts I'm talking about, you know? They are the lightest of shorts. And then those little tanks, those little Nike dry fit tanks and everything. And, it, you know, and everything's light. So you got the tank top. You got the short shorts. You got the Nike runners. And everything's super, super light. Have you ever seen these, the sprinter shoes? You pick those up. Very light. Very lightweight. Why? Because you don't want extra weight. You don't want extra baggage. Slowing you down. Weighing you down. And this is what the writer says. He says, let us lay aside every weight that would, would set us back. And then he says, weight and sin. So he's talking about some of the weights are not necessarily sins. Some of it's sin that's weighing us down. But some of it's just weights. And so we've got to identify the difference there. Lay aside the weights and sins. Now, when Jesus taught the parable of the, uh, the soil, remember when he said the sower goes out to sow, and he sowed, and the, 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 the sower sowed the seed. The seed was the word in the parable, right? So he goes out to sow, and the, the seed fell on four different types of soil. 
Remember, there was a couple times, couple of the, one was the wayside where the birds came and took, just took the seed away right off the road, right? And then the, then the last one was the good soil, okay? In the middle two, you had the rocky soil and then you had the thorny soil. The idea of that, that soil was that there was, there was the cares of the world. There was the things of the world that came up and strangled and the rocks and things of the world that caused the, the seed not to be able to, to, to be planted deep and, and, and root deep in. And so it's the same thing in, in, in kind of a different analogy with the weights. The weights might be like those weeds or those things that would come up and strangle. The weights would, would seek to be that which might slow you down and cause distraction and uh, all kinds of things in your life that in, in the end prevent you uh, from maybe running the race that God has set before you in the way that he wants you to run it. And that's why the moral of that parable, the, the message of that parable, is to make sure that we've got good soil. To make sure we have good soil. You know, that the soil, like, you know, it's, it's, it's not the hard soil and it's not the rocky soil. I mean, I remember when I would mow my, uh, when I was 13, 14 years old, I, I mowed my grandma and grandpa's uh, grass every Saturday. And I don't know what it was about this yard or whatever, but there was always rocks in the yard. And I remember, you know, having to stop the mower and, you know, go out and, 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 put, and get rocks out of the yard and then go back and start the mower all over again, right? Remember that whole process? And this was before the, the you know, the easier mowers where you had the, you know, the, the release and the whole thing, you know. And so sometimes you got to just get things out of the soil. You got to get weights off, so that you can do things in the right way. A good analogy, another good analogy, there's many good analogies, right? Scripture is packed with great stuff. <laughs> um, one of the great analogies that I've always loved is the analogy of David. You know, when he went uh, up to, uh, you know, visit his brothers in the battle and he saw Goliath taunting the people of Israel and he said, well, I'll go up and, and face the giant. And they said, oh, okay, okay, well, here, put this, put this uh, armor on. And they put Saul's armor on David. And, and, and David comes out, and he's got you know, this big war helmet and a big thing, and he's going to go out there, and he's like, oh, this ain't going to work. I mean, I've fought bears and lions and all this stuff in the wild, and I just do it my way. And i got to get this Saul's armor off and just give me my five stones, my five stones and my and my slingshot, and faith in Christ, and I'll go up and face the giant. And sometimes we got, you know, we're walking around with Saul's armor. It's not a sin. It's just Saul's armor. And we got to lay it aside so that we can run the race that God has, has set before us. Uh, so after losing the weights, well, there's weights and sins. Now, some of it, we've talked a lot about weights. What, 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 what might some of the weights be? It might be distractions. Sometimes it might be, there might be people in your lives that are weights. That's kind of, you have to really use discernment on that one. Amen? Because some people will be a distraction and a weight to you. Some people, you've got to just kind of drag them along, you know, <laughs> as you go. But there's some people that, 
At some point in time, there's some times where you have to be, have the wisdom and the, and the, and the understanding from the Lord enough to go, you know what, I've got to, I'm going on without you because this is the direction I'm going and I'm not going in that direction. I'm going in the direction that God's got me going in and you have to have the, the, the will to, to make that decision and the strength in Christ to do it, Amen. But then once you set the weights aside, then you got to set the sins aside. Make sure that there's not, um, you know, it, it, we, we all struggle with sin. You know, the, the, the writer, John the Apostle says, if you, if you say that you don't have sin, you're a liar, you deceive yourself, right? Um, but yet God is, is he, he wrote the whole letter of 1 John. He says, these things are right to you that you may not sin, Right? Chapter 2, verse 1. But if you do sin, we have an advocate. Chris talked about it. So, so it's not that we're sinless. It's not that we become sinless this side of seeing Jesus face to face. But we sin less. <laughs> because we're putting off the weights and sins. And we're, God is working in us in such a way so that we can do that. So put off the weights and sins that so easily beset us and run the race that is set before us. Now, the race that we're running isn't a sprint. If it was a sprint, there would be a lot more people that could do it. Okay, look, all you got to do is run the 100 meters. Okay, so everybody get up in the blocks. We're gonna, the gun's going to go off. You're going to run from here to there. It's a short race. Boom, it's going to be over. It's a lot of people that might sign up for that race. But this isn't a sprint. This isn't the 100 meters. It's not even the 200 meters. It's not the 400 meters. It's Honestly, it's not even the marathon. <laughs> it's a race that goes on and continues on for the long haul of our entire life because we are running this race until at last I lay down, right? Until at last I lay down and he calls me home. But until then, I'm running the race that is set before me. And so we've got to run the race. Now, he says, the writer of Hebrews here, he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And see, that's why we need endurance, because it's a long race. We need endurance. A marathon is a test of endurance. It's a test of stamina. So here's the question. And the, run, the, the race of faith is a, is, a, is a rest of endurance. So the question is for each and every one of us, do we have, does our faith have the stamina that we need to make it to the end? Do we have faith that has endurance? He says run with endurance the race that is set before us. Instead of endurance, the King James uses the word patience. Let us run with patience, that kind of puts a little bit of a different feel to it, doesn't it? Because endurance kind of feels like, okay, I've got to have stamina, I've got to have endurance. But patience kind of makes it feel like, wow, sometimes I might be like just waiting on somebody. Sometimes I might just having to defer. Maybe sometimes I have to be patiently waiting for the door to open that God's going to have me walk through. And so there's patience. Patience in the spiritual race of faith may sometimes mean pain and suffering as well. But by faith, 
we've got to run the race with patience and endurance. If you're going to be a marathon runner, you have to like running. If you don't enjoy running, you probably won't make it as a marathoner. We've got to run the race that is set before us. We've got to learn to be faithful. Faithfulness is the key. When you train for a, for a marathon and there's training involved, nobody just wakes up one day and says, okay, when's the, when's the marathon? Tomorrow? Okay, what time? It don't work that way, folks. <laughs> you train for a marathon and then you barely make it across the finish line. Because trust me, my brother-in-law ran in the Dallas Marathon and he couldn't walk for two weeks afterwards. <laughs> and he's younger than me, so that's why I'm not doing it. <clears throat> So, <clears throat> but you got you to gotta do it. Remember uh, Rocky, you know, remember, I love Rocky, you know, the, the first one. <laughs> you know, such a, such a great, you know, because basically he saw himself as a bum on the street, but he wasn't a bum, actually. I mean, he was a hard worker. He got up every day and he ate the raw eggs and whatever that's about, you know, and, and he got out there and he ran and he chased the chickens around and, and all that stuff. And, and but, but, but what do you do? You do that every day. You do that every day. You saw him out there running the streets of Philadelphia every day. It wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to face Clubber Lang or I'm going to face, you know, Apollo Creed or whatever. And I'm going to get out there and like, you know, every couple of months I might get out there and chase the chickens around the neighborhood. No, it don't work that way either. Okay, so what it is is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. And enjoying the process of what God is doing in our life. And so let's move to the last point because we're going long tonight. Uh, sorry about that. Um, let's finish up this last point. The, um, focus on Jesus. Faithfulness is the key, and we've got to focus on Jesus. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so faithfulness is the key, and we've got to focus on Jesus. We're, as we're being faithful, it's not just we're being faithful in, in being faithful to whatever, we're being faithful to the person of Christ, and so we're focused on him. We've got our eyes fixed on him. He's the, and, and that's why the writer here says that, uh, that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know, when you look at the life of Christ, you look at what happened with Jesus. What happened? He, he was you know, born into the family with Mary and Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. He learned the trade, and he did that for, for 30 years with his father. And then he went and, and presented himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist baptized him. And what happened? The Holy Spirit, uh, in the form of a dove, came down and rested on him. And the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And so from that moment forward, you see the person of Christ as this person who's baptized in the water of the Jordan, but baptized in the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to begin to walk forth in that mission that God has called him to and placed him there on the face of the earth, the person of Christ, right? And so he's the author and he's the finisher. I mean, he's he, Jesus, who is fully God, right? One with the Father, the one who left the throne and did not 
Consider it a quality to be with God, something to be held onto or grasped, but came to earth and, and put on flesh and, and showed up at the river Jordan to be baptized. Now he's being baptized. He, the spirit is coming upon him and now he's walking forth and he walks it forth all the way to completion. And that's why the writer says he's the author and he's the finisher of the faith. He, he showed us how to do it he, every step of the way. He prayed. He fasted when, ne- when necessary. He, 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 he read the word. He was in the word. He, was, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, Luke 4. They handed him the scroll. He read from the scroll of Isaiah. I always love reading that. Jesus went to the synagogue on, you know, on the Sabbath, as was his custom. What? You mean he had a custom? He had a faithfulness? He had a commitment to do the things that, that he was doing? Yes, Jesus is the author and he's the finisher of the faith, and he hasn't asked you to do anything that he hasn't perfectly already walked out before you. And that's the beauty of it. And that's why we can keep our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You don't look on, you can look at certain examples, but remember, men, mankind will always let you down. A man's always gonna let you down. Jesus will never let you down, amen? Jesus will never let you down. And that's why I think pastors don't do do themselves a disservice by allowing themselves to be put up on any type of pedestal. Because in the end, I mean, and I'm not saying that a pastor isn't an example, yes. But I'm here tonight as this pastor telling you what this passage says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith, and he's never gonna let you down, amen? And let's close it off with this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He endured the cross and its shame because of the joy that was set before him. The joy, the joy that was set before him. Why would you become a disciple? Why would Jesus go to the cross and endure it? There was a joy that was set before him. Christian, you're not going to walk this well. You've got to have a joy set before you. You've got to have the the joy of the Lord. You've got to have the anointing of the Lord upon your life. You've got to have the oil of joy in your spirit, in your heart. You've got to be just filled to complete, overflowing with the spirit of God and the oil of the Holy Spirit in your life because there's something in your life, there's something in in what God has done in your life and that's been in you and it's set before you and, and there's something set before you that, that, that we're, going to, we're gonna do this no matter what. Lord, no matter what happens, I'm gonna follow you. No matter what comes, I'm gonna follow you. And if you've got a joy, can you imagine? He got all the way up. He knew why he had come. He knew why he had come. And it came right up to the time when he knew he was going to turn his life over. The Lord's, no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He said, I lay my life down of my own accord and I can pick it back up again. He came to the very night 
and he agonized over that. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And Christian, you've got to have a joy. You've got to have the joy of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus set before you. And the beauty of his life, the beauty of his holiness that he's calling you to, set before you so that you can walk through this life with him. Amen? And so that's the, that's the race that we're in. That's the journey that we're on. And this is just the beginning. We're going after the, the, the disciplines of Christ.